Well, last night was another trophy opportunity lost in what has been a disappointing season for Toronto FC. 3-1 lost, saw Tigris crown the inaugural winners of the Campions Cup, a trophy which pits the winner of Liga MX and MLS against each other. But I couldn't help but think this week uh, as I read through Joshua Cloak's new book, Come On You Reds, How Far the Club Has Come. Uh, This disappointment is nowhere near the dysfunction of of the early years of Toronto FC, which Josh chronicles in the book about the history of the club. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and today on the show we will talk to Josh Cloak about his book, what he learned while writing it, uh, as well as quickly touch on some Toronto FC and Bayern Munich in the later half of the show. Josh, thanks for hopping on today. Yeah, of course. Well, before we get uh, too much into the book itself, uh, let's talk about one of the ways you listeners can get your hands on the book. Uh, we have a Footy Talks event coming up on October 11th at the Rivoli, uh, where we're celebrating the launch of the book itself. Myself, James Grossi of MLS Soccer, Laura Armstrong of the Toronto Star, and Gareth Wheeler of TSM will be there. Uh, more guests will be announced soon as well. Sounds like some exciting names could be involved from what I've heard. Um, uh, there will be a reading of part of the book uh, and, and much more, and it's $25 for both the book and a ticket to the event. So that's incredible value. You can head over to homestand.ca slash events for the full details. Um, this is always a fun time, Josh, but I guess for you, this will definitely be a, a special one. Yeah, I mean, the, the book's been done for a while, and then, you know, you, you finish writing it, you, you do all the edits and and there's all this other stuff behind the scenes that goes into it. And uh, I kind of put it in the back of my mind for a while. And, you know, now that the season is, looks like it's slowly coming to a close, um, you know, there's, it's definitely not the the high that TFC are riding this point last year, but I, I, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I think it's, it almost harkens back to the days of, you know, the, the 2011, 2012 TFC teams that just uh, couldn't get out of their own way. Um, and um, I, I, I think there's this team obviously resonates with a lot of people very strongly. Um, so good or bad, I think there's always people that are hopefully willing to, to talk and, and read about uh, TFC. And, and uh, yeah, it should be a good, fun uh, event. What initially made you want to write this book? Because obviously Toronto FC has such a fascinating history, which uh, is is very evident when you when you read through the book. But what was it initially about Toronto FC that made you want to uh, get into this sub- subject? I think when you look at last year um, and, you know, 2017, their 2017 season does feel like a really long time ago now, doesn't it? Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, people were talking about this team as they were winning games, you know, 4-0 just handedly, and, and that kind of became the norm. People were talking about how this team had become the gold standard in MLS, and this had become the franchise that other MLS teams should look at in terms of how to build a winner. Um, and it, it really, really wasn't that long before that that this team was just a mess. And this was a team that, again, couldn't get out of their own way. This was a team that just struggled with constant management turnover and constant player turnover. And they were the butt of jokes throughout the league. Um, And anytime you have that kind of turnaround from a team that, you know, went from a joke to, again, record setting, a record setting year, you you have to ask, how did that happen? And once you kind of unpack, um, you know, those kind of stories, and when you look at who was involved, you realize there was so much happening behind the scenes with TFC that that 
that really contributed not just to, I don't want to say their downfall, but what contributed to them being just such a mismanaged organization. And, and then there's a lot to learn about, you know, how they became uh, an organization that really did, you know, at least it, it looked like it last season, mm-hmm. set the bar in terms of what needed to be done to win an MLS. So it's as much a story that that's what really appealed to me is how did this change happen? You know, because we've seen so many franchises across so many sports just get stuck as the perpetual underdogs, the perpetual losers, the perpetual butt of jokes. I mean, uh, we're talking about franchises like the Cleveland Browns and we're talking about, you know, a lot of franchises, uh, you know, a lot of soccer teams in Europe that just can't get over that hump. TFC did that. Um, and I think anytime that happens with any franchise around the world, uh, you want to know why. And that that's what originally intrigued me is looking at how did this happen and who were the people that made this happen, right? Yeah, and our, our colleague Joshua, or sorry, uh, James Gross, he had a, a great quote in the book um, that the club had lived met, or has lived many lives, which is certainly something that that you kind of get through through the you know the the story itself and and the way it's told. Um, what were kind of some of the some of the stories that you're really interested in when it comes to Toronto FC? Because there's definitely been some some absolutely wild moments in in this club's history. So, um, you know, what did you, what did you really want to key in on and, and kind of get a, a look at and talk to people about over some of the, those moments? Well, I think what, what a lot of, I mean, when we, and, and by we, I mean just fans of teams and fans of sports, I think, you know, maybe when you're first getting into this, a club, uh, and TFC, you know, is still a very, very young club. So when people get into them, I think sometimes you just maybe naturally assume that, the people that are running this club, um, you know, have the background and they know what they're doing. But what I really wanted to unpack <laughs> was who were these people making the decisions and what influenced their decisions? Because it did seem like it was just bad decision after bad decision with TFC. And that can't be, you know, I was convinced that that couldn't be just luck or that couldn't be just happenstance. There needed to be a reason for that. And there there were a lot of reasons without giving too much away and you learn a lot about the people and and what influenced people to make these decisions and you learn that there's a lot happening in these people li- people's lives when these decisions happen and you almost forget that yeah these people that are running the club and these people that are playing for the club they're just people just like you and I and and um you know a lot of what goes on in their lives maybe at their personal lives that can influence um you know, what happens on the pitch. And I think that's something a lot of people forgot about. Um, And yeah, this is a, even though they do have a relatively short history, uh, our boy, Jimmy Grassi, I mean, he, he said it best. It's a team that, that has lived many lives and every single season, something else happened with TFC. I mean, I, I really think this 2018 season is not out of the ordinary because if you go back through their history Every single season is marked by some big event. I mean, it's it's strange for a club to go through a different coach, you know, every single season, and that's what was happening. And then there's you know there's a few high points, and there's there's glimpses of uh, you know of success, and those quickly disappear. It was never ever boring with TFC, and and my hope is that you know readers aren't bored either you know, going back through the history of the club. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's about a chapter a season uh, is the way you've kind of uh, yes. set it out. And it's it's so interesting as to how, you know, every chapter is so different. <laughs> and so there's there's so many new characters and so many new names. And um, that's that's definitely what I enjoyed about the book was just going back through the history and kind of finding out in some cases, oh, that's what happened there. Because, you know, I was pretty young when I first started following Toronto FC. And um, I wasn't obviously as in tune to what was going on behind the scenes I just watched the game and and games and kind of knew the players it was hard to know the players in those early years um, because there was so much turnover but yeah that's what I loved about the book was was you kind of delved into the history and, and speaking to that like uh, you know you interviewed a ton of people for this book obviously which uh, which was kind of the most eye-opening interview for you who who are you who did you talk to that kind of you know gave you the best uh, insight into what what's happened with this organization or you can even say a couple names if if there's a couple that stand out for you well i think it's always slightly dangerous when when hindsight comes into it because i, I was able to get every single coach uh except one uh and again I, I encourage everyone to to pick up the book and figure out who did not want to talk um but every coach was was quite willing and i was kind of worried about that going in because a lot of these coaches were very hard to find. Um, and a, a coach that was really interesting to speak to was Ryan Nelson because he comes in at a really interesting time. He's he's Kevin Payne's guy. And when he comes in, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, how is it that TFC have hired a someone who is ostensibly supposed to be their coach while he still has to finish out his contract as a player? Um, and then when you throw in everything with... With Defoe, um, I think you start asking a lot of questions about it. Back then, it was like, "What is is this guy the right guy?" And and you know, why did TFC go down this 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 path? And I don't think Nelson has really had a chance to kind of share his side of the story. So I really enjoyed speaking to him and and getting insight into what was happening behind the scenes because he was kind of that last guy before. This new regime, and I'm talking about the the three-headed, you know, Bez, Bill, and Greg Vanny kind of triumvirate took over and really pushed this club to new heights. And he was kind of the last one. And and I think maybe the appointment was misguided, but I do think that there could have been a really interesting place for uh, Ryan Nelson in the future of TSC. So it was good to hear his side of the story. Um, it's interesting as well. You look at how much now TFC is putting a focus on young player development. They've put so much time and resources into their academy. And you go back, that's what Aaron Winter had all, that's what he had wanted to do. You know, he had wanted, he put such a focus on playing young Canadian players. And he wanted to, to make TFC this team full of local players. Um, had he had more time to do that, I, I, I wonder if TFC could have been ahead of the game because, I mean, the MLS draft is taking a backseat now to, to homegrown players and homegrown players are, uh, you know, becoming of the most important uh, part of MLS. You look at Alfonso Davies' record-setting move to Bayern. I mean, teams want to develop young players and it seemed like Aaron Winter really wanted to do that. Um, so speaking to him and speaking to Bob DeClerc about what their vision was and why that vision was derailed, um, really interesting stuff. It, it, the theme all across every year just seemed like TFC 
management, upper, upper management wanted a lot and wanted it very, very quickly. And perhaps they didn't understand that, that franchises some take, sometimes take time to build. I mean, perhaps looking at Atlanta United success, you would argue that that's not true. But, um, you know, they really wanted things to click very, very quickly. So it was new idea after new idea. And you wonder how things could have been different for this club had they allowed one of these coaches to really, uh, you know, allow his, his game plan some time to to kind of come to fruition because it, it it never really did with TFC, right? Yeah, for sure. Um one of the one of the interesting things about certainly this story as well is how big of a role the fans have played in all of this and um you know as as is well established in the book in the early years it was really the fans who were driving the marketing and driving all the positives about this story um when it comes to toronto fc and i I, kind of reading through it i was interested with the the parallels and i know paul burns definitely the one the one person who you know is the common denominator in this but there's so many new teams and uh, launching here in in cities throughout Canada with the Canadian Premier League um you know looking back at, at Toronto FC and when they in, initially launched are there some things that you think um you know th- these teams could learn from from what they were able to do because at least off the field immediately in terms of fan support Toronto FC were incredibly successful and they kind of you know you talked about setting the gold standard this past uh, in 2017 for what a team could do on the field well right away in 2007 they set the gold standard for what a team could do off the field and uh, were kind of the first true uh, truly big supporters uh, club in in Major League Soccer yeah what what always struck me about that was that, you know, every other, and I mean, Toronto is a crowded sports market. Um, I would argue that the Leafs have a stranglehold um, in terms of interest uh, among sports in this city that is unparalleled across North America. And I, I've had this discussion many times and people say, well, what about the Red Sox in Boston? Well, then you've got the Patriots and, and okay, yeah, but what about the Lakers in, 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 uh, in LA? Well, then, you know, you've got the Dodgers. No team has this kind of stranglehold that the Leafs had. So it was a really interesting time for TFC to, to come in because, you know, the Leafs weren't experiencing a lot of success. The Raptors weren't either. The Jays certainly weren't. You had an opportunity here for fans that, that wanted to, young fans especially, and, and TFC made an effort to attract those young fans that wanted to break away from uh, their father's and mother's teams. Do you know what I mean? They wanted to find a team to call their own. And the Raptors had a lot of that too when the Raptors came in. But, but you know, the Raptors benefited from being in a very established league like the NBA that had inherent star power in it. So when TFC comes in, there's an opportunity for people to say, you know what? Let's take a chance on this league and this team, and we can make it our own, uh, and we can really claim ownership of that. And I, I know that TFC management were surprised at how quickly that happened, but it just goes to show that you know if you give a team or if you give fans a chance to uh, be vocal and express themselves and and express interest in how a team should look. And I'm not saying you should cater to fans when you make decisions, but at least in the beginning, 
You know, at least when a when a team is is launching, if you give fans and and you read the book, I mean, this team was essentially conceived um, at the table in a pub in the annex. I mean, hmm. this is this is a team that that wanted the input of fans very very early on, and and Paul Byrne definitely looked to fans to inform how this team should look at least in the beginning. Um, not a lot of teams do that, and so I think fans took a sense of ownership in the club uh, and I think that stayed for a very long time because uh, again you when you give fans an opportunity not just to buy a season ticket but to really be involved in the formation of a club uh, and get to know owners and get to know players through through pub nights and that would never happen with the Leafs and the Raptors and the Jays so um, you know it, a lot of fans I spoke to said they were they were happy being known as as the misfits back then, but it's worked out because they still enjoy some of the most ardent support in MLS and some of the most dedicated support now in Toronto. They're they're firmly part of the conversation in Toronto, and that was very tough to do considering, you know, like I said, the Leafs have the stranglehold that they do. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and it's it's incredible how far this club's come from from being born in a pub to to now where it is. Um, one of the people who certainly got it there is is Greg Vanny, and you know it, it strikes me as interesting how you know how almost revisionist history uh, everything is with all this fire Vanny talk right now. And obviously, oh, it's, it's always come from a certain uh, certain part of the the internets, and um, certainly not from the mainstream. It would seem, but you know. It, that's it's definitely also a huge theme of this book and you've touched on a little bit is how many of these managers you know maybe just weren't given enough time or, or circumstance didn't dictate them enough time to get enough of a plan in place and and something we've seen with Greg Vanny I mean there was consideration to maybe get rid of him after you know 2015 but Bill Manning certainly you know wanted the stability there and it, it just seemed would seem incredibly short-sighted obviously to to cut that now that there has been so much success under Vanny? I think what when you think about Vanny, you have to think about um, who he was before he was head coach. I mean, he came, he was hired to be the academy director, which I, I'm not saying people forget, but I think that's something people need to remember is that this is a, uh, you know, a man and a coach that is so invested in the future of the club. And, and he likes to boast that he knows the names of every single academy player down to the U-12s and you know where they're from and what their strengths are and that kind of thing. Um, so he was invested in the club long before this head coaching position became available. And he almost, his arm kind of had to be twisted uh, to, to take on this job. Um, and yeah, I mean, if, if you fire Vanny at the end of 2015 because of you know, in large part because of that really embarrassing loss against Montreal, you're kind of overlooking uh, the real issues at, at hand. And, and you know, that issue was that they, they couldn't keep the ball out of the back of their net. I mean, they lost 3-0 in Montreal, which was a really, really glaring. Um, and again, that, that's not on Vanny. And, and nor is it on Vanny this year. I mean, we can have that conversation if you want. But I think the the calls to fire Vanny are, are incredibly ill-informed because, you know, you look at what TFC Bill Manning said after 2015, they said, we need to get stable in the back end. And they do that. That manifests in the addition of Drew Moore. And 
who's missed, you know, so many games this year, it, it, it's Drew Moore and, and TFC's back line is leaky again this year. And it's just, you know, the importance of a solid, dependable, you know, center back who can organize things um, should never be understated. Uh, and I think, you know, Bill Manning knows that. And he kn- I think he knew that if you fire Vanny in 2015, all you're going to do is make players feel a bit more uneasy so instead of taking away, let's try and build on this thing, right? Let, let's add instead of subtracting. Uh, and that was probably one of, if not the most important steps to their championship in 2015. You, you'd say Drew Moore and Victor Vasquez were probably the most important additions after 2015, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, from you slowly saw the steps build up, but uh, some very important uh, additions along the way and none of that happens if there isn't the stability there um, you know before we quickly move on uh, from the from the book itself um, obviously as we said October 11th is a great opportunity to to pick up the book um, but uh, if if people aren't able to make it um, what are some of the other ways they can get it yeah, wherever you buy your books, uh, if hopefully you do buy books these days, uh, <laughs> it'll be available in all your online retailers, Amazon. Uh, it'll be available in bookstores across the country. Um, but yeah, wherever and there will be eBooks available as well. Wherever you buy your books, uh, come on, you Reds will be available. Great. Yeah. Uh, again, I can't recommend it enough. It was a great read, a great trip down memory lane. Um, you know, not all the stories were were incredibly positive, but it, it's all part of the club's fabric. So uh, an incredibly interesting story there. And uh, another chapter in the club's history, I, I, I'm, you know, it might be a brief chapter, but they, they did lose in their first ever uh, Campionis Cup yesterday, 3-1 to uh, Tigris uh, in front of what was certainly one of the smaller crowds we've seen at BMO Field this season even with a decent number of Tigris away supporters coming up uh what did you make of this match Josh I know you were there I I didn't necessarily want to travel in for for the match but um what did you make of it yeah TFC came out looking really good in the first 15-20 minutes uh and and they were attacking you know and I think that's something that the TFC are really going to have to do the rest of the season if their back line isn't healthy and if they continue to miss Drew Moore and Chris Mavinga. I mean, Josie Altador was up for this one, and and Jay Chapman uh, has his header go off the bar, and and uh, it's close, right? It it looks mm-hmm. like TFC are are building things. The ball is moving quickly, and uh, and it looks as if they 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 could have been onto something. But once you allow Tigres to get in the game, um, it didn't take them long to figure out how to kind of penetrate TFC's backline, which. Um, you know, again, seemed like it was kind of parsed together. I know Michael Bradley has played in that center back role quite often this season, probably more often than, you know, the team would have wanted him to. Um, but, you know, having Nick Haglin and, and having Eric Zavaleta back there, they can do a job, but without Drew Moore and without the organization that he brings, without the direction that, that he brings, because each of those players have individual skills um you know both are good in the air uh both have a bit of speed but you know just when it comes to to reading uh you know the building attack that might not be their best strength that's what drew Moore's strength is and you know he was sorely missed because once once tigris got into it they got three really quick ones uh and they you know tfc's back line 
seem to be their heel again, you know, um, and it's kind of been the story all season. I don't think TFC, even though they only got one last night uh, on a penalty, I, I don't think they have trouble scoring goals. I mean, and they shouldn't mm-hmm. with the kind of attacking power they have, but you can't allow three against the Galaxy. You can't allow three at home against Tigres. I mean, that's just, to me, that's symptomatic of an unorganized back line, and it's it's symptomatic of players that you know, necessarily, and, and I hate to use this Vanny term, but don't have relationships with each other. I mean, it's it's a constantly rotating starting 11. Uh, and that's what helped them last year was their starting 11 seemed almost set in stone. Players knew each other's movements and that's, they, they you know, confidence built from that. They haven't had that this season. Um, and they, they, you know, they didn't have it again last night. Um, and you know, the, I think the result is, is, is pretty telling of, of how the game played out. Yeah. In that regard, it does definitely remind you of that 2015 season where they did have all the offense, but, um, you know, it was, everything was kind of undermined by what they were, what they did defensively. Uh, what do you make of this competition? Because uh, there's certainly a lot of split about it on social media and uh, even among some of the media. I know MLS and League MX have been pushing this competition very hard, but the the club hasn't necessarily been doing the same. It, you know, it, the main thing for the club is that it comes at a really brutal time for them. And even regardless of that, you know, if you look at kind of competitions like this throughout the soccer world, maybe the European Super Cups, like the biggest one, but these aren't necessarily huge events. You know, there's almost every um, league has one of these cups before the seasons, uh, you know, the the Community Shield in, in England. And none of them are really that important. So, you know, seeing some of the fans and how disappointed they were at, at losing a trophy like this, I was incredibly surprised. Um, obviously, this is the inaugural year of this this competition, so hopefully it will develop into something more. But, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on this one yet. Yeah, and, and perhaps you should be. I mean, to me, this, is, this smacks of, of too much soccer. Uh, and I know our good friend uh, Ollie Platt kind of tweeted about that last night. I mean... There comes a point um, when the world's most popular game has, I guess, just become too popular. And what I mean by that is is you are rolling players out for exposure, and exposure is good. Exposure is good for a league like MLS that is still growing and still up against some very, very big leagues in North America. Uh, but at the risk of players' health uh, and at the risk of, of you know just general interest from fans, I mean... There was, what, about 14,000 people there last night, which is less than half of what BMO Field holds. Um, you know, that, that that's not good. This this is the kind of game that there's no real good time for it. To me, it seems like it's a game that should be held in preseason, right before the season to, to generate a bit of hype. But having it midweek uh, in the middle of September is just... It, it, that's not beneficial to... To both fans who are saying, "Look, no, I'm investing time in this this playoff push," you know, I don't know what this new midweek thing is, and it's not an optimal time for players either. I mean, uh, Greg Vanny said last night that Victor Vasquez was available to play and he could have played, but instead they made the decision not to play him, and you know, Javinko got the slightest knock and he was subbed off, and then Josie Altador was subbed off. So it struck me as as something that that could evolve into an interesting tournament. I don't know 
if the need for MLS and League MX to constantly compare themselves to each other is necessary. They're both good leagues in and of themselves. I don't know, you know, if we need to continue talking about which is better, but again, that's a that's an argument for another day. I just think that it became very clear that this was something that the leagues wanted to work right away, but there was still a lot of skepticism from fans and perhaps the, the clubs themselves. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of kinks that need to be worked out, uh, you know, as this, this, this game, this trophy moves forward. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you said in your, uh, you, the piece you wrote about this for The Athletic, that there was some pressure on Toronto FC to play a stronger roster, but we saw certainly that they weren't going for it all the way with, as you said, Vasquez not coming on, uh, the quick uh, exits of both of their designated players. Um, you know, I wonder how much this could have almost been worse. If, say, Toronto FC is, is the Montreal Impact or in their position right now, like, you know, Toronto FC could kind of kind of go for this a little bit more because they you know the playoffs are looking incredibly bleak at this point but if they were dead center in this playoff race and and potentially just holding on to a playoff spot do you think they would have gone for it at all i I don't know i don't really envision a, a situation where again in september i mean tfc would have to be at you know the san jose earthquakes level for them to be to to really go for this uh i just don't envision any kind of circumstance where a midweek game with a game being the day or the weekend before and they've got another game um, away to Red Bulls the weekend after. I just don't envision a situation where you really, really go for it um, given the timing. And and that's, I think, something the league is really going to have to, two leagues are really going to have to consider is how do we optimize exposure and minimize any, you know, minimize risks to players uh, in the process, right? Yeah, for sure. And you, you know, you would expect, considering it is the the last year's MLS Cup champions, that Toronto FC would be a bit of the exception, and it would use, usually be a team uh, more in the playoff uh, situation uh, when this game is played. So yeah, the timing's not great, and we'll see how this this happens going forward. But uh, it doesn't seem like we're gonna have it played at BMO Field for for a couple years now, anyway. So or at least next year. So um, moving on to to another topic, I wanted to talk about with Toronto FC, and that's uh, at Toronto FC two, um, Subasa Endo, you know, uh, it really seems like he's he should be get, getting a second chance with the first team. He, he obviously he didn't sign off the start of the season. They offered him that contract with Toronto FC two. He had some trials over in Europe, but uh, ended up coming back and signing that contract. And he's been just incredible. Eight goals in nine games, and I know a lot of people have said maybe that um, you know it's not at the highest level. Obviously, it's at the USL, but. He did just drop three goals on FC Cincinnati, who is a team who will be coming into MLS and have a very solid roster. They've only lost something like three games all season. So, um, you know, they're they're closer to an MLS side than they are to a USL side. So, you know, I, I wonder, I'm I, to be honest, I'm surprised we didn't see him in the Campions Cup, but it looks like bright things ahead for Endo. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, I, I spent some time uh, with Endo for a story uh, that'll be coming out hopefully soon at the athletic um this is a guy that's so dedicated to 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 getting it right and getting another chance with tfc i mean the main thing standing in his way is his designation i mean he would be an international player right and you know those those spots 
are sometimes hard to come by and TFC are, are up against the cap as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's tough for him right now, but I think, I, I think it's impossible to overlook what he's doing um, because he's scoring against teams that, like you said, are, are, are teams that are kind of in the upper echelon uh, of USL. I, I saw him play against Louisville he scored there. He scored against uh, Indy as well, and he scored against Cincinnati. He's not just scoring against development teams. He's scoring against teams that are kind of knocking on the door of MLS, um, and he's he's doing it from distance. I mean, it's it's these are not goals by chances. These are strikes from distance, and and you know I know we don't want to go down this road again, but I always loved watching Agar Keche play this year. Uh, because he was never afraid to have a go from distance, and I think sometimes keeping goalies goalkeepers honest and and that element of surprise has been missing from TFC. Um, and I think sometimes you know Endo could provide that. Uh, he's really impressed me, you know, with, with his work ethic and and with his ability just to score. He's he's not a big guy. He's not the kind of guy that'll clean up garbage in front of the net. Um, there's a lot of talent there, and and I have to assume Greg Vanny is watching. Whenever I have either you or Ollie on, I can always uh, always uh, assume the conversation will end up at Agra Kache at some point. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of sad I didn't uh, dedicate an entire chapter to, to Agra Kache. <laughs> there's a lot there. That would have been funny. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our final segment. Um, you are also now the Athletics Bayern Munich writer, which is pretty awesome. I'd assume that's pretty much a dream job for you. Uh, so I figured we'd spend the the final ten minutes or so discussing them. Um, but oh boy, it seems like no team that you cover seems to be able to escape injury crisis. Uh, you know, Kingsley Coleman uh, out for the rest of 2018. Uh, Rafinha got hurt, uh, Toliso as well, and Gretzka has been dealing with some injury problems as well. Uh, is that kind of one of the stories of the season early on for Bayern Munich? Is that a lot of their good players are, you know, are obviously dealing with injuries now? Yeah, this one because it's so early in the season, this one seems like just a bit of bad luck. I mean, Kingsley Coman goes down uh, in the first game with, you know, with injury. Um, and had he played in the World Cup, you might have said, well, he was. You know, he was, he was exposed and, and, you know, for too long and too much football. But that seemed like a freak injury. Taliso's uh, injury seemed like a freak injury as well, uh, as did Rafinha's. I don't think, you know, if, if these injuries were piling up later in the season, you might start asking questions about the team's medical staff. Um, but I think this is just a case of of bad luck right now. Um, thankfully for Bayern, I mean, their midfield is about as deep as... as you'll find in Europe. So I think, I mean, it's uh, last I heard it's doubtful Kingsley Coman plays this season, which is really unfortunate. This is a young player that just hasn't been able to really showcase how dynamic uh, an attacking winger he is. But I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that Byron will be able to get out of this. Okay. I mean, if you want to be opportunistic about it, uh, it certainly paves the way for Alfonso Davies to, have a, a really good shot at getting some minutes with Bayern. Um, I originally thought that he'd be sent out on loan to kind of acclimatize to the Bundesliga, but now I'm hearing that you know they were they had Davies in their plans, uh, you know, to be in their 18 regularly all along. Um, so again, perhaps you just perhaps I'm just putting a positive spin on this, but it it does pave the way for. For him to earn some minutes when he comes over uh, in the winter, but I, you know, 
I, I, I got to think that Byron uh, will get out of this okay because these injuries just seem like really bad coincidence more than anything. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to hear about Davies because, as you said, there's always the worry when he, when a player goes to a big club like that that uh, he'll end up being one of those those players like Odegaard or, or something like that. And obviously Odegaard could still turn out, but those players who just consistently head out on loan. So um, the fact that – and you would assume – especially considering they you know he was presented to by a bunch of teams that um Bayern certainly made it clear that they had a plan for him but um yeah that's definitely promising to hear and obviously um as you said you never want to see a player especially a player with the quality of Kingsley come on go down but um there is always the next in line kind of situation especially at a club like Bayern um same same with managers as well and uh you you've the new manager this season obviously Nico Kovac uh you know he doesn't have the resume of of his predecessors um but uh what have you made of him so far I know you wrote a piece for the athletic about his uh, kind of how he's dealt with uh Thomas Muller who's obviously a player that uh tactically is difficult to to get into sides sometimes so it uh, looks like an improvement there and uh uh, you know, it's, he hasn't lost yet, so so solid results so far. Yeah, I think if if Kovac loses one of his first few games with Bayern, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you you might think the sky is falling in in uh, in Bavaria. But no, I, I everything I've heard about him is that he has a really good way of dealing with players and communicating with players, and that's what I kind of thought would be one of the hurdles for him. I mean, he's walking into an ego filled dressing room. And this is a manager that's never managed at the Champions League level. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly big risk. I actually liked the move in in bringing him in because, you know, the reason that I thought they faltered under Ancelotti was because he he just didn't have any new ideas and he couldn't spark that kind of interest. And and when you bring in a a newer, younger manager, you're often able to, to spark players with your kind of new ideas. We know that he... Kovac really loves to build from the wings and they have a number of players. I mean, yes, they lost Coman, but I mean, that, that's probably music to Ribery and, and Roban's ears. And he loves to see a player like uh, Joshua Kimmich, you know, bust up the flanks and, and it could work with Alfonso Davies as well. So um, he likes his teams to be pacey. He likes them to move a lot. And under Ancelotti, I, it was just, it was lethargic at times. Bayern just looked not even lost. They looked bored. Um, so bringing in someone young with new ideas when with a kind of a creative approach, um, that can do a lot, you know, that, that can be a, that can have a real good effect on the team. And they've been, they've been exciting to watch so far. Um, but I also know that, you know, it's very tough to judge a Bayern team until you get, you know, one or two games against the Schalke's Dortmunds. And then once you really get into the knockout stages because I mean, like it or not, that's when people really start to pay attention to Bayern is, is when the, the knockout stages start, even as far as the quarterfinals, because that's when, you know, everything before that Bayern are just expected to win. Right. So um, it's, it's early returns are good, but I know we still have to reserve judgment uh, for a while now. Yeah. As you, as you mentioned, he doesn't necessarily have that champions league experience, but um you know, it's kind of a relatively easy uh, way to get into it for them. Uh, an easier group with Athens, Ajax, and Benfica, who they beat 2 0 yesterday on goals from Lewandowski and uh, Swansea City legend Renato Sanchez. Um, 
you know, obviously this is going to be the big goal this season is, uh, as you said, is the Champions League. Um, how do you like their squad when, when shaping up to uh, some of the big teams in Europe? Because obviously there, there, there does seem like a lot of movement this offseason in terms of um, the powers kind of shifting some, some talent around. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been, if you're a Bayern fan, it's been tough to watch them go out at the hands of Madrid the last two years. And Ronaldo has just, they just sunk the team the last two years. You just, you talk to Bayern fans, they just have this this pit, you know, in their stomach, this feeling of, you know, once Ronaldo gets the ball, I mean, he scores against every team, but it, it, Bayern seemed especially susceptible to him. So I think if anybody felt really, really good about his move to Juve, it, it was Bayern fans. Um, I, it's a bit early again for me to tell because I, I think they'll be very active in the winter window. They didn't do, they didn't bring in um, anybody in the summer window that then went on and played for the team. They did bring in Davies, but they left him at, at Vancouver for the rest of the season and Goretzka had signed, or he had announced previously. So I'm, I'm inclined to think they're going to make a pretty big splash in the winter window, um, especially if these injuries continue to be serious. And, and then I think we can really, I know I, I'm, I'm kind of holding off on assessments here, but it's still <laughs> so early. And, and I think that because they d- didn't do a lot in the summer, I think they are, I'm inclined to think they'll do something in the winter, um, something that could maybe change the course of, of their Champions League outcomes. All right, that that um, definitely gives us a good uh, idea of what's going on at Bayern so far. Obviously, as you said, it's very early on in the season, and uh, for a lot of these clubs, we aren't going to be able to fully judge them until um, even the Champions League knockout stages or, or when they play some of their biggest rivals, and, and some of those rivals have already very much faltered if, if you're Bayern Munich, so um, it's not looking like the Bundesliga will be too much of a challenge for them again this season, but um, I think we'll, we'll wrap things up there, Josh. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime. And uh, again, that's October 11th, 7 p.m. at the Rivoli for the next Footy Talks. $25 gets you a book and a ticket for the event. Head over to homestand.ca slash events. And as always, it'll be a great night of talking soccer. Thank you, everyone, for listening and have a good week.